Section 9 of All of Grace by Charles Spurgeon My Redeemer Liveth Continually have I spoken to the reader concerning Christ crucified, who is the great hope of the guilty. But it is our wisdom to remember that our Lord has risen from the dead and lives eternally. You are not asked to trust in a dead Jesus, but in one who, though he died for our sins, has risen again for our justification. You may go to Jesus at once as to a living and present friend. He is not a mere memory, but a continually existent person who will hear your prayers and answer them. He lives on purpose to carry on the work for which he once laid down his life. He is interceding for sinners at the right hand of the Father, and for this reason he is able to save them to the uttermost, who come unto God by him. Come, and try this living Savior, if you have never done so before. This living Jesus is also raised to an eminence of glory and power. He does not now sorrow as a humble man before his foes, nor labor as the carpenter's son, but he is exalted far above principalities and power and every name that is named. The Father has given him all power in heaven and in earth, and he exercises this high endowment in carrying out his work of grace. Hear what Peter and the other apostles testified concerning him before the high priest and the council. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom ye slew and hanged on a tree. Him hath God exalted with his right hand to be a prince and a saviour, for to give repentance to Israel, and forgiveness of sins. The glory which surrounds the ascended Lord should breathe hope into every believer's breast. Jesus is no mean person. He is a Savior and a great one. He is the crowned and enthroned Redeemer of men. The sovereign prerogative of life and death is vested in Him. The Father has put all men under the mediatorial government of the Son so that he can quicken whom he will. He openeth, and no man shutteth. At his word, the soul which is bound by the cords of sin and condemnation can be unloosed in a moment. He stretches out the silver scepter, and whosoever touches it lives. It is well for us that as sin lives, and the flesh lives, and the devil lives, so Jesus lives. And it is also well that whatever might these may have to ruin us, Jesus has still greater power to save us. All his exaltation and ability are on our account. He is exalted to be, and exalted to give. He is exalted to be a prince and a savior, that he may give all that is needed to accomplish the salvation of all who come under his rule. Jesus has nothing which he will not use for a sinner's salvation and he is nothing which he will not display in the aboundings of his grace. He links his princedom with his saviorship, as if he would not have the one without the other, and he sets forth his exaltation as designed to bring blessings to men, as if this were the flower and crown of his glory. Could anything be more calculated to raise the hopes of seeking sinners who are looking Christward? Jesus endured great humiliation, and therefore there was room for him to be exalted. By that humiliation he accomplished and endured all the Father's will, 
and therefore he was rewarded by being raised to glory. He uses that exaltation on behalf of his people. Let my reader raise his eyes to these hills of glory, whence his help must come. Let him contemplate the high glories of the Prince and Savior. Is it not most hopeful for men that a man is now on the throne of the universe? Is it not glorious that the Lord of all is the Savior of sinners? We have a friend at court, yea, a friend on the throne. He will use all his influence for those who entrust their affairs in his hands. Well does one of our poets sing, He ever lives to intercede before his father's face. Give him, my soul, thy cause to plead, no doubt the father's grace. Come, friend, and commit your cause and your case to those once pierced hands, which are now glorified with the signet rings of royal power and honor. No suit ever failed which was left with this great advocate. Repentance must go with forgiveness. It is clear from the text which we have lately quoted that repentance is bound up with the forgiveness of sins. In Acts 5.31, we read that Jesus is exalted to give repentance and forgiveness of sins. These two blessings come from that sacred hand which once was nailed to the tree but now is raised to glory. Repentance and forgiveness are riveted together by the eternal purpose of God. What God hath joined together, let no man put asunder. Repentance must go with remission, and you will see that it is so if you think a little upon the matter. It cannot be that pardon of sin should be given to an impenitent sinner. This were to confirm him in all his evil ways, and to teach him to think little of evil. If the Lord were to say, You love sin, and live in it, and you are going on from bad to worse, but all the same I forgive you. This were to proclaim a horrible license for iniquity. The foundations of social order would be removed, and moral anarchy would follow. I cannot tell what innumerable mischiefs would certainly occur if you could divide repentance and forgiveness, and pass by the sin while the sinner remained as fond of it as ever. In the very nature of things, if we believe in the holiness of God, it must be so that if we continue in our sin and will not repent of it, we cannot be forgiven, but must reap the consequence of our obstinacy. According to the infinite goodness of God, we are promised that if we will forsake our sins, confessing them, and will, by faith, accept the grace which is provided in Christ Jesus, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins, and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But, so long as God lives, there can be no promise of mercy to those who continue in their evil ways and refuse to acknowledge their wrongdoing. Surely no rebel can expect the king to pardon his treason while he remains in open revolt. No one can be so foolish as to imagine that the judge of all the earth will put away our sins if we refuse to put them away ourselves. Moreover, it must be so for the completeness of divine mercy. That mercy which could forgive the sin and yet let the sinner live in it, would be scant and superficial mercy. It would be unequal and deformed mercy, lame upon one of its feet and withered as to one of its hands. Which, think you, is the greater privilege, cleansing from the guilt of sin or deliverance from the power of sin? I will not attempt to weigh in the scales two mercies so surpassing, 
Neither of them could have come to us apart from the precious blood of Jesus. But it seems to me that to be delivered from the dominion of sin, to be made holy, to be made like to God, must be reckoned the greater of the two, if a comparison has to be drawn. To be forgiven is an immeasurable favor. We make this one of the first notes of our psalm of praise, who forgiveth all thine iniquities. But if we could be forgiven, and then could be permitted to love sin, to riot in iniquity, and to wallow in lust, what would be the use of such forgiveness? Might it not turn out to be a poisoned sweet, which would most effectually destroy us? To be washed, and yet to lie in the mire, to be pronounced clean, and yet to have leprosy white on one's brow, would be the veriest mockery of mercy. What is it to bring the man out of his sepulchre if you leave him dead? Why lead him into the light if he is still blind? We thank God that he who forgives our iniquities also heals our diseases. He who washes us from the stains of the past also uplifts us from the foul ways of the present and keeps us from failing in the future. We must joyfully accept both repentance and remission. They cannot be separated. The covenant heritage is one and indivisible, and must not be parceled out. To divide the work of grace would be to cut the living child in halves, and those who would permit this have no interest in it. I will ask you who are seeking the Lord whether you would be satisfied with one of these mercies alone. Would it content you, my reader, if God would forgive you your sin and then allow you to be as worldly and wicked as before? Oh, no! The quickened spirit is more afraid of sin than of the penal results of it. The cry of your heart is not, Who shall deliver me from punishment? But, O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? Who shall enable me to live above temptation and to become holy, even as God is holy? Since the unity of repentance with remission agrees with gracious desire, and since it is necessary for the completeness of salvation, and for holiness' sake, rest you sure that it abides. Repentance and forgiveness are joined together in the experience of all believers. There never was a person yet who did unfeignedly repent of sin with believing repentance who was not forgiven, and on the other hand, there never was a person forgiven who had not repented of his sin. I do not hesitate to say that beneath the copes of heaven there never was, there is not, and there never will be, any case of sin being washed away, unless at the same time the heart was led to repentance and faith in Christ. Hatred of sin and a sense of pardon come together into the soul, and abide together while we live. These two things act and react upon each other. The man who is forgiven, therefore, repents, and the man who repents is most assuredly forgiven. Remember first that forgiveness leads to repentance, as we sing in Hart's words, Law and terrors do but harden, all the while they work alone. But a sense of blood-bought pardon soon dissolves a heart of stone. When we are sure that we are forgiven, then we abhor iniquity, and I suppose that when faith grows into full assurance, so that we are certain beyond doubt that the blood of Jesus has washed us whiter than snow, it is then that repentance reaches to its greatest height. Repentance grows as faith grows. Do not make any mistake about it. Repentance is not a thing of days and weeks, a temporary penance to be over as fast as possible. No, 
It is the grace of a lifetime, like faith itself. God's little children repent, and so do the young men and the fathers. Repentance is the inseparable companion of faith. All the while that we walk by faith and not by sight, the tear of repentance glitters in the eye of faith. That is not true repentance which does not come of faith in Jesus, and that is not true faith in Jesus which is not tinctured with repentance. Faith and repentance, like Siamese twins, are vitally joined together. In proportion as we believe in the forgiving love of Christ, in that proportion we repent. And in proportion as we repent of sin and hate evil, we rejoice in the fullness of the absolution which Jesus is exalted to bestow. You will never value pardon unless you feel repentance, and you will never taste the deepest draught of repentance until you know that you are pardoned. It may seem a strange thing, but so it is. The bitterness of repentance and the sweetness of pardon blend in the flavor of every gracious life and make up an incomparable happiness. These two covenant gifts are the mutual assurance of each other. If I know that I repent, I know that I am forgiven. How am I to know that I am forgiven except I know also that I am turned from my former sinful course? To be a believer is to be a penitent. Faith and repentance are but two spokes of the same wheel, two handles of the same plow. Repentance has been well described as a heart broken for sin and from sin, and it may equally well be spoken of as turning and returning. It is a change of mind of the most thorough and radical sort, and it is attended with sorrow for the past, and a resolve of amendment in the future. Repentance is to leave the sins we loved before, and show that we in earnest grieve by doing so no more. Now, when that is the case, we may be certain that we are forgiven, for the Lord never made a heart to be broken for sin and broken from sin without pardoning it. If, on the other hand, we are enjoying pardon through the blood of Jesus, and we are justified by faith, and have peace with God through Jesus Christ our Lord, we know that our repentance and faith are of the right sort. Do not regard your repentance as the cause of your remission, but as the companion of it. Do not expect to be able to repent until you see the grace of our Lord Jesus, and his readiness to blot out your sin. Keep these blessed things in their places, and view them in relation to each other. They are the Yachin and Boaz of a saving experience. I mean that they are comparable to Solomon's two great pillars which stood in the forefront of the house of the Lord, and formed a majestic entrance to the holy place. No man comes to God aright except he passes between the pillars of repentance and remission. Upon your heart the rainbow of covenant grace has been displayed in all its beauty, when the teardrops of repentance have been shone upon by the light of full forgiveness. Repentance of sin and faith in divine pardon are the warp and woof of the fabric of real conversion. By these tokens you shall know an Israelite indeed. To come back to the scripture upon which we are meditating, both forgiveness and repentance flow from the same source and are given by the same Savior. The Lord Jesus in his glory bestows both upon the same persons. You are neither to find the remission nor the repentance elsewhere. Jesus has both ready, and he is prepared to bestow them now, 
and to bestow them most freely on all who will accept them at his hands. Let it never be forgotten that Jesus gives all that is needful for our salvation. It is highly important that all seekers after mercy should remember this. Faith is as much the gift of God as the Savior upon whom that faith relies. Repentance of sin is as truly the work of grace as the making of an atonement by which sin is blotted out. Salvation, from first to last, is of grace alone. You will not misunderstand me. It is not the Holy Spirit who repents. He has never done anything for which he should repent. If he could repent, it would not meet the case. We must ourselves repent of our own sin, or we are not saved from its power. It is not the Lord Jesus Christ who repents. What should he repent of? We ourselves repent with the full consent of every faculty of our mind. The will, the affections, the emotions, all work together most heartily in the blessed act of repentance for sin. And yet at the back of all that is our personal act, there is a secret holy influence which melts the heart, gives contrition, and produces a complete change. The Spirit of God enlightens us to see what sin is, and thus makes it loathsome in our eyes. The Spirit of God also turns us toward holiness, makes us heartily to appreciate, love, and desire it, and thus gives us the impetus by which we are led onward from stage to stage of sanctification. The Spirit of God works in us to will and to do according to God's good pleasure. To that good Spirit let us submit ourselves at once, that he may lead us to Jesus, who will freely give us the double benediction of repentance and remission according to the riches of his grace. By grace are ye saved. End of section 9